How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're looking behind the headlines about renewable and fossil fuels in California. With the economy inching upward and federal tax incentives winding down, what's the state's energy outlook? We'll discuss gas and electricity prices, emerging technologies, new government regulations, and a heated trade dispute with China that is dividing the solar industry. In the next hour, we'll cover that and a lot more and include questions from our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Here to offer their insights on power plays in California, we welcome three of the state's leading energy reporters. David Baker is a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, Dana Hull with the San Jose Mercury News, and Cassandra Sweet with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thanks for coming. Good to see you here. Uh, Dana, let's begin with you and talk about the economy is slowly recovering. Uh, wh- what does that mean for energy investors and energy companies? Are they going to be able to get some more steam with the economy picking up? I think so. I think you have, I think there's sort of a national energy picture and a California energy picture. And I personally am very bullish about the future of renewable energy in California. We have a governor who is not afraid to talk about climate change. We have a 33% renewable portfolio standard. We have utilities that are signing renewable contracts and, um, the solar industry and the wind industry as well are doing really well here in California. So I think you're going to see those job, that job growth continue. David Baker, because there was some concern that in a recession that, well, renewable energy costs more, investment was tight. Uh, you know, do you see that also sort of the economic growth giving some buoyancy to the clean energy companies? I do, although it's been interesting to watch how, especially if you're talking about residential solar here in California, it actually did pretty well during the recession. I mean, we've basically doubled our installed base of photovoltaic panels in the state, doubled it in the last two years. Those were really bad years economically, and yet we still had that kind of growth, in large part because the state government had set these policies in place years ago to encourage this stuff, and it snowballed. It gained momentum to the point where the prices were coming down, there were plenty of installers out there, and people were taking advantage of it more. So in the last couple of years, even though the economy's been bad, the growth has happened, and I think now that the economy is coming back, yeah, we'll see more of that growth. Cassandra Sweet, you cover markets. You know, what are the financial markets saying about the prospect of energy and clean energy companies? Are they sort of earlier out of the recession? Are they lagging? Uh, I think it depends on the companies. Um, you know, certainly uh, federal and state incentives and state requirements for renewable energy, such as here in California, uh, we have a requirement that utilities use renewable sources like solar power, wind power, uh, geothermal power, other types of renewable energy for a third of the power that they sell by 2020. And so that that requirement and the federal and state incentives have really driven demand here for renewable energy and created a market for developers who want to build those projects. So developers like uh, for solar, um, uh, SunTech, other uh, solar power developers, uh, suppliers, wind farm developers, they have a market. They can come here. They can bid projects. They know they're going to get a contract. I think the outlook is a little bit more uncertain in other parts of the country. For example, the southeast, where they don't really, they don't, they have little, if any, renewable energy requirements. Uh, Got a lot more coal there, sure. There's a lot more coal, but um, so I think investors who have been investing for a long time in renewable energy still see growth and they see a positive future. I think investors who have not been that active are uncertain about the future. Uh, Part of that, they say, is political volatility in Washington. They don't know what the government is going to do next year. They don't know if renewable energy incentives are going to be increased next year or done away with. So I think there's a lot in flux right now, uh, but certainly the market, the U.S. renewable energy market is growing. 
and the question will be how fast will it grow. There's also, I think it's important to, to mm-hmm. differentiate between some of the different kinds of companies. Like, you know, you're talking about project developers, the people who are building big power plants out in the desert that use solar power or geothermal in some areas. Those people are doing pretty well in some cases. In other cases, they're not because they use different technologies. If you look at people who install solar on your rooftop, they're doing really well because the panel prices came down. If you're looking at the people who make the panels, they're in a world of hurt, and they're going to stay in a world of hurt if they stay in business at all. So some parts of this, some parts of the renewable energy industry are going to go through a very rough year, maybe two years or so, while other parts are doing pretty well. And this seems to be all natural teething pains of a you know young industry. Um, is it true, Dana, that there's more uh, entrance, more competition in, in the marketplace? That there's more companies coming in? Well, I think I think a lot of people talk about clean tech rather broadly, but yeah. it's really made up of sort of six or seven different subsectors. There's there's solar manufacturing, there's the smart grid, electric vehicles, advanced biofuels. Um, so it, it kind of depends on what sector you're talking about. But if you think about the smart grid and the fact that we're we're moving to have this kind of interoperable electricity system, there's tons of companies in Silicon Valley that are all trying to get a hold of how to manage your energy data and how to make the electric grid more efficient. And, I mean, there's startups all over the place. Um, but those are software companies. They're not right. project developers that are trying to build a new solar panel or, you know, invent a new way to, to tap geothermal resources. So I think that there are a lot of entrants on the on the demand side. Um, there are not as many entrants on the kind of manufacturing supply side. And one of the reasons there is because the capital requirements, it's just a lot more expensive to build a huge power plant in the desert or to, to do manufacturing. How are some of the VCs in Silicon Valley, you know, a few years ago, uh, getting an energy was very trendy, and then they realized, well, it's not as easy to make money in this as it is in software, and it, it takes a long time. Have they pulled back? I think, I think that... Um what you've seen in Silicon Valley is maybe a, a maturation of the industry and a, and a growing understanding on the part of VCs that, you know, investing in energy is not like investing in software. It's a, it's a very lo- capitally intensive, long horizon kind of investment. And, um, you know, people who thought that they could invest in a company and get an exit three or five years later are realizing that that time horizon is more like seven or nine years. And so there are, um, so it's not two guys in a dorm room and flip-flops who create a huge company, right? It doesn't work that way. It does, it does, yeah, it doesn't, or it doesn't work that way, in part because you have kind of competing state and federal regulatory structures that make the whole process of getting permitting and licensing a lot longer. I mean, there's environmental regulations, there's CEQA, there's FERC. I mean, you have to deal with a lot when you're trying to create energy. There's transmission lines. Um, so I think, you, you know, the idea of a bunch of VCs putting a billion dollars into a solar manufacturing facility, that's not going to happen anytime soon, but you're still seeing a lot of investment in other parts of the clean tech economy, like car sharing. Um, I mean, car sharing companies are attracting investors like crazy. Cassandra Sweet, where do you see the capital coming from? You, do you see if it's not from sort of venture capital? Uh, is it other sources of capital coming into clean tech? Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of large companies are getting more and more involved. Uh, we had uh, the French oil giant Total, uh, which bought 60% of SunPower, which is a San Jose-based um, solar panel manufacturer. So that's an oil company buying a solar company, which exactly. is interesting. Yeah. And they've made other investments in other clean technologies, um, biofuel companies. Uh, Chevron is an investor in another local um, clean tech company here called Solazyme, which makes biofuels and biochemicals and beauty products from um, oil made from algae. So they grow algae and they, they make all these products. Um, and so you're, you're seeing more interest by some of the large energy companies. Um, I think really underneath it all, though, there's this um, expectation that government policy will support continued development of these markets and without that, uh, it can be really hard to kind of see a future, uh, particularly in the near term, without some kind of, you know, government support in the form of tax credits or requirements, for example, you know, biofuel goals uh, set by the federal government. Um, uh, so I think investors at this point see a lot of promise in these technologies, uh, and at the same time, they're, they're pressing for more government support 
uh, of these technologies versus conventional petroleum-based fuels, for example. But, David Baker, some of those supports are winding down. The stimulus mm-hmm. funds kind of ran out last year. There was a big push to get some projects through in 2011. Some of that money has ended or is, is winding down. So is, how's that going to affect if the investors are saying we're counting on some buoyancy from the government? Well, it's, it's not just stimulus funding. I mean, that was... Some tax credits. Yeah, yeah. tax credits. um, That actually is a much more long-term kind of thing. That's that's more of what these investors are looking for. It's not so much going to the government and saying, hey, giving me a bunch of money, although the government was doing that for a little while during the, the depths of the recession. It's more just saying, okay, I need to have... 15-year horizon on this investment. I need to know exactly how things are going to pan out over the next decade or so. Am I going to be able to count on this tax credit from you folks over at the federal level? If so, how much is it going to be? Is it going to be the same year after year, or are you just going to keep reauthorizing it every two years and keeping me stringing along? That, That doesn't work for any kind of energy company, oil, gas, solar, geothermal, anything. All of these projects are very complicated, very capital-intensive, and you need to know exactly how they're going to be treated by the feds, by the tax man, over the next, you know, 10, 15 years. So right now we're going through a period of great instability in terms of what is going to be the, the federal policy going forward. I don't think that's going to get really settled until the election, frankly. There's a lot of support still among Republicans for some of these tax credits for renewable power companies. But things are going to be secondary to election politics until we get that out of the way. The other other thing that's happened is that, um, you know, the the sort of cost argument that renewables will be cost effective over the long haul is really up against incredible competition from natural gas because the price of natural gas has basically collapsed. And so I think what was really interesting about Obama's State of the Union address was he said, we're not going to walk away from the promise of clean energy, but he talked a lot about natural gas and the desire to develop more natural gas and this sort of all of the above strategy. So now you have solar and wind companies, you know, competing against natural gas, which is kind of in this price freefall, and that, that's going to be hard for them as well. So are you saying natural gas is not clean? Well, there's real debate about that. I mean, it's... Natural gas emits less carbon than coal, but there are a lot of environmental impacts in terms of how the gas is extracted. It's called hydraulic fracturing or fracking, and it leads to the water that comes back is um, not usable. There's a lot of questions about well safety and water safety and aquifer safety. So um, I I would say that natural gas is cleaner than coal, but it's certainly not a renewable source of energy. still a fossil fuel. It's still a fossil fuel. Cassandra, you want to get on the the electro context or anything else? Well, I just wanted to add that I think think natural gas and renewable energy is not seen as an either-or thing, even though certainly low natural gas prices have forced power prices lower and also, you know, made it more difficult for renewable energy to compete against that, you know, even though prices for renewable energy like wind power have also fallen. So... Uh, with innovations in manufacturing and installation uh, as products get better and more efficient. Uh, You know, you you can produce wind power and solar power for a lot less than you could five years ago. Uh, But even so, I think um, people are looking at natural gas as a fuel to replace coal for um, generation of electricity and also for other uses, uh, for heat, uh, for... For Maybe for exactly for transportation. Um, so I think uh, I think if you're talking about well, we don't need to do renewable energy because we're, we have all this natural gas. I think um, maybe that's a question, a political question. Uh, I think a lot of people want both. They want the United States to focus on developing as much renewable uh, emission-free electric generation as possible, and, and also to do a lot of fuel switching from coal to natural gas. So, as David mentioned, we're in this political cycle, this political year. Let's let's mine that a little bit. And sort of what are the big choices? What are the trade-offs that we're going to see in this political year that, that are going to be decided, I guess, by the fall? Hmm. Uh, I guess not the XL pipeline. <laughs> well, there's the pipeline, sure. I mean, well, that yeah, that won't be decided. But are there other, other things that are anything on the state ballot that's looming out there? Is it too early to see what might be on the state ballot? There's probably going to be another attempt to uh, put an extraction tax on oil uh, in California. We don't. A lot of oil-producing states have a, a tax on basically whatever comes out of the ground. We don't do that. We just we tax them via property taxes, basically. That's probably going to be on the ballot again, but that's on the ballot 
almost every time, and it never John, goes anywhere. John Burton was that, uh, I think, the former. I don't remember who actually first started, but it's it's sort of it's become a perennial. You see it well, often. V- voters got that shot that down a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and oil companies would say, well, we don't have that wellhead tax, but we, but we are get taxed in many other ways. Our taxes mm-hmm. are just as high as those other states if you count up these other taxes. Is that, is that true? I don't know if you actually, if, if you sat down and tried to pencil it out. I've never done that. I'm not sure if they would equal out. Um, and, you know, if, if you're talking about trying to capture all the value through property taxes on something whose price changes as much as oil does, there's a problem with that just in terms of how you're constantly having to assess it. Um, I don't know. You know, it's something maybe voters will change their minds on. I do expect oil prices are going to be higher at the end of this year than they are right now, and they're already around 100 bucks a barrel. So that could play into it. I think the debate around oil taxation comes down to, you know, oil producers saying if you overtax us, we are going to go elsewhere. And so we're not going to produce, you know, you're going to create a disincentive for us to produce oil here in California. They've said this about Alaska. Uh, Alaska oil royalties are very high. Uh, These were put in place during the Sarah Palin administration, oddly enough. Uh, I think, I mean, some oil companies have said that it's a price increase that's tied to where oil prices are, and so the higher they go, the higher the tax goes. And they've said it's could be something like three times what it was before if oil prices are above $100 a barrel. So they've been fighting that all this time. They, the oil companies? The oil producers Uh in Alaska have been really pressing the government to um, reform those oil production taxes. And uh, the current administration, uh, Sean Parnell, has been, you know, each year he puts forward these um, proposals to, you know, reduce the tax structure. He's going to try to do it again this year. Um, you know, that state is very dependent on oil tax royalties to, uh, oil royalties to, uh, to pay for most of their state programs. You know, Alaskans each get kind of a rebate from this. And a lot of California crude comes from Alaska, right? So a lot of the the gasoline we put in our tanks here in California actually comes from Alaska. So could that hurt California consumers if that? If they, uh, yeah, it certainly could. Um, you know, the production in Alaska has been declining every year, and so that state really wants to see production increase so they can increase the flow through the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. And you're right, California uh, relies on Alaska for a lot of our oil, especially here in, in the Bay Area. David Baker. There are two other things to consider there. One is that when you're talking about oil, it's a question of access for large oil companies. I mean, if you look around the world for companies like Exxon and Chevron, one of their biggest worries, one of their biggest fears, is that they're slowly getting boxed out of various places that they used to be able to operate. A lot of countries that used to give oil, American oil companies free reign are now saying, hmm, well, we've got the expertise, we've built it up over the years, we'll do this ourselves. State-owned we'll, oil companies. State-owned oil companies, and we'll just... We'll, we'll take care of it from here. Thanks a lot for your help. See ya. And so when you're talking about production in the U.S., you know, one of the reasons oil companies scream as loudly as they do about getting access to more areas is they figure, well, this is our country, too. We should be able to produce here. If they've got infrastructure up and running in a place like California or Alaska, are they going to ratchet back production because their taxes go up a little bit? Probably not. The other thing, though, to keep in mind when you're talking about oil taxes is the fracking that Dana referred to earlier. That is now starting to be used for oil production around the U.S., and there are people who are testing that here in California, um, mostly down in the Santa Maria area. And that is going to be kind of dependent on taxing and prices because it's marginally cost-effective. You know, unless they can prove that it it really pans out at a, a lower cost than we've got right now, then the taxes may play into production there. If you're talking about an existing oil field in, like, Kern County or up in Alaska, though, I don't think the taxes will be a, a huge issue in terms of how much oil we get out of the ground. If taxes went up on California extraction, would that affect the, the price of a global commodity, or that, would it just be would it be passed on to consumers or not? Uh, it'd be passed on locally. So, you know, um, physical oil prices are set usually based on a benchmark price. So, that, so here in the United States, that would be the NYMEX, the New York Mercantile Exchange. So, what that price is for the front month, and then depending on local demand and, and production and, and supply. 
um, there's usually a differential. So, you know, um, oil that's traded in the San Joaquin Valley in Southern California could trade at, you know, a dollar above the NYMEX or 50 cents below the NYMEX. And that changes according to, uh, you know, to local supply and demand. Cassandra Sweet is a reporter with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Our other guests today at Climate One are Dana Hull with the San Jose Mercury News and David Baker with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, David, you said that gas prices will be more expensive later this year. Can you explain why? Well, think of the last couple of years. I mean, we, we have been going through a terrible economic period, and it used to be that one of the few benefits of having a, a big recession is that oil prices and gasoline prices would go down. And we did have, in 2008, a, a sort of pit of oil prices where they came off historic highs and plunged down to an area they hadn't been for a few years. But after that, they came back up and settled around 100 bucks a barrel. And last year, if you look at the whole year, we spent almost the whole year between 85 and 105. It was, or 115, sorry. It's actually fairly stable compared to what has been in the past. But my point is that's a really high level for a period when you have such high unemployment and a lot of people not driving to work. And the reason it's been that high is largely because growth is, is continuing in China and India and other places in the country. So that's the floor that we're starting this year at. We're at a really high oil price, a really high gas price. What if Israel does attack Iran? The price is going to go bonkers if that happens. What um, if they close off the Strait of Hormuz? What if they close <laughs> off the Strait of Hormuz? Same thing. Um, if our economy continues to gain traction, the price is going to go up from that, too. If Europe manages to avoid a, a double-dip recession, price will go up. So I, I see lots of reasons why the price will go up by the end of the year, and I don't see many why it would go down. So. One, one thing about, about gas prices is that you know no one wants the price of gas at the pump to go up during an election year, but there is sort of a psychological tipping point where um, elect, where it's actually very good for the electric vehicle industry, and there's this whole perception that once gas is above $5 a gallon, the consumer adoption rate of electric vehicles will, will just be incredibly high curve um, because you start to pencil out, you know, how much money am I spending on gas and electric becomes a much sort of greater value proposition. Well, but it also becomes sort of a life life, life preserver kind of thing. You you see the these spiking gas prices and you don't know how, how high they're going to go and you think, okay, that leaf looks pretty expensive up front, but it's an insurance policy. You know, I'm protecting myself in the future. And it becomes more appealing that way. Yeah. And the fuel costs for an electric car are more stable. Electricity is regulated. It doesn't sort of spike the way gasoline does. But you said $5 a gallon. Last time it was $4 a gallon. Americans were screaming and the politicians were running. So mm-hmm. you really see $5 a gallon? I think she's yeah. talking about $5 a gallon here in California. We yeah. have the highest retail rates in the sure. country. Just have we almost. hit 5 though, before? Nope. No, we, no, we no. Okay, but you're, are you saying we're going to hit five? I think we could. It, we could. I, mean, I, think so. I think we could hit five by the summer. Really? If yeah. we had a <laughs> booming global economy, and, and you know, David is total, is completely correct about this. So we have, um, it, you know, not just China, but other Asian countries that are developing. They have these growing middle classes. All those people want to buy cars and drive them. They need more fuel. And, uh, you know, this is putting more pressure on global fuel su- uh, suppliers. Um, and meanwhile, we have all this, you know, uh, political change going on in the Middle East, and that always affects fuel prices, uh, oil prices. So, I mean, I, I don't think it's completely crazy that we could see $5 really? uh, gasoline, you know, in the next year or so if we, if we had a lot of economic recovery here in the United States and around the world, and maybe something else happened. Maybe we had a hurricane. Mm-hmm. Uh, this has happened before, you know, where prices went sky high and people didn't you know, anticipate it. You can rely on a, f- a few trends that, that pan out in energy a lot, and one of the most reliable is that gasoline prices go up in the spring mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons, but that happens almost every single year. This is the start of February. I think our average in California is 376 right now. Our record in the past is 461. That's not that far away if you think about how high prices can swing during the summertime. So. And when it happened last time, people ditched their SUVs and they went to smaller cars, but then when gas prices went down, they're, ah, the SUVs came back. We have very short mm-hmm. memories. But do you think that the electric car thing might stick? 
That's a good question. I think a lot of it has to do with the fuel supply. This is what we're hearing from auto manufacturers who are very interested in making these types of vehicles and selling a lot more of them. Uh, but their main concern is a lack of um, fueling infrastructure. So they want to see more uh, fueling stations for electricity, for hydrogen, and they want to see it everywhere so that consumers like us are not going to be worried about, oh, how am I going to fill up my car you know, if I drive to Sacramento or I want to, you know, go to dinner in Palo Alto, you know, am I going to run out of fuel and I'm going to have no place to recharge? Yeah. So who's going to pay for that infrastructure, though? Or Dana? Well, I was just going to say, with the electric vehicle industry, it's still really a nascent market, and it's kind of like a baby taking its first step. So this idea that electric cars... I mean, they they are going to be adopted in wider numbers. It's just that it's a very small number at the moment. And the infrastructure question is kind of a chicken and the egg thing because people don't want to invest in infrastructure unless they have proof that the demand for the, for the vehicles is there. But people don't want to buy the vehicles unless there's charging infrastructure. So, But I think you're seeing both develop. You know, Best Buy and Ikea have put in charging stations. There's public charging stations here in San Francisco and in San Jose and at the Oakland Airport. And so as more and more of that infrastructure gets in place, I think that you'll see more consumers feel confident that they can um, try an electric vehicle. The other thing that's happening is that you don't have to buy an electric vehicle outright. You can borrow one or rent one through car-sharing services like Get Around and Relay Ride. So you're starting to see that electric vehicles are becoming more accessible without having to pay for the cost of one up front. I think, actually, at the Four Seasons here in San Francisco, guests can rent a Nissan Leaf as part of the package deal of renting of renting a room. Cool. There's a, there's also a point. I mean, you, you got to realize that these these things have only really the leaf and the bolt have only really been been on sale for a year at this mm-hmm. point, and they didn't hit their sales targets. Both companies wanted to hit about ten thousand, and they both of them missed it. Although not by much for the leaf, but I mean, this is a new technology for most people. Everybody's used to a gas car. They know what they're like. They know what to expect. This is something that's new for most consumers, and it's not the same as you know looking at your neighbor's iPad and saying, "Oh, maybe I'll get one of those." It's it's a lot bigger investment. So, we're in the period where naturally people are going to be looking at this and waiting for other people to kick the tires, and it will, you know, it's naturally going to take a little while to snowball, assuming that the tires kick out okay. Now, there's no major problems. Um, people are cautious with that kind of money, so. They want to see other people adopt it. They want to make sure that there aren't major recalls in the first couple of years. And then once you get that basic comfort level, that's that's a big thing. I just took the plunge and bought an electric car, and my <laughs> wife says it's like having a cute dog because everyone wants to come and tickle it and talk about it. But people, once they realize no gas, they're like, wow, that's cool. There's a fair amount of confusion in the marketplace between electric and plug-in and some gas and some electric or all electric, yeah. hybrid. But when people realize, wow, no gas, that's pretty cool. They, they, they get it, but are they willing to really put the money down and, and, and buy it? And They're willing to wait to see Francisco. how you do. That's, your neighbors are happy to see how you do. And, and tomorrow I'm going yeah, to Palo Alto for dinner at a friend's house, and I said, can you feed me dinner? And by the way, can I have some electricity? Because otherwise I can't get home. Uh, that's, it's, it's a real concern. I wish there was more public charging. Yeah. We're talking about uh, energy in California with David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle, Dana Hall of San Jose Mercury News, and Cassandra Sweet with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Um, Cassandra, you mentioned hydrogen. Our previous governor, Schwarzenegger, was very big on hydrogen. It didn't, his dreams didn't pan out for that. Uh, the hydrogen highway d- isn't really there yet. Uh, but is, is that still a viable option? Because it always seems to be 10 years away forever. Uh, you know, th- this is not an area that I'm an expert on, like it, it, technically, but, uh, you know, uh, this, this, this came up. This is a big issue in the clean cars um, leg- uh, regulation that, mm-hmm. uh, that the State Air Resources Board just adopted, uh, was that last week? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a federal version kind of of these rules that's pending. So um, I, I think a lot of uh, the auto manufacturers, they think it's, they've been working on these cars. They think they can make them. Uh, I think the big problem is the major fuel suppliers that we have now, you know, which are mainly the main, uh, mostly the big oil producers, you know, Chevron, Shell, uh, BP, but also, you know, we've got Valero, Tesoro, other uh, refiners like that. They make fuel from petroleum. They don't make hydrogen. 
So there's a big question about where is all this hydrogen going to come from? You know, there are a lot of um, smaller companies that are making it, but there's a question of how we're going to scale it up and how are we going to ensure that it's widely available for people. Uh, and this this is a big fight that's going on right now uh, in Sacramento. Who is going to pay for the hydrogen fueling infrastructure? Is it going to be the service station owners? Is it going to be the fuel suppliers, you know, the big petroleum companies that don't make hydrogen? Um, is it going to be taxpayers who pay for that? Who is going to ensure that hydrogen is available for people who want to drive those cars? David, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I think hydrogen sort of got left in the dust um, about five years ago, actually, and it, it largely over this question. The, you know, we talk about the needing charging stations for electric cars. It's a lot of infrastructure that you need to put in, but it's a lot simpler than putting together a hydrogen fueling infrastructure. You know, the only only model I've seen for that that works is having these little, basically, I guess you'd call them reformers, stationed at gas stations that would plug into natural gas lines and strip the hydrogen basically out of the natural gas. That's much more complicated than sticking in a charging station. And I just don't see how that scales up very quickly or very cheaply in, in a way that the, the public would, would accept. So I, I, I'm... Quite bearish on hydrogen. I just I don't see that that is a, a viable solution for a large scale problem. Electricity is already everywhere. Hydrogen is yeah. right, not, not there yet. Um, let's talk about the smart meters, smart grid. We touched on that a little bit earlier. Um, smart meters get people very excited. Some things have happened recently. Smiles here. Let's talk about you know uh, smart meters this week, Dana. Well, basically, utilities across the country and around the world are changing out. The metering technology and the sort of old analog meter that was basically read by a meter reader once a month is going away. And in its place is a so-called smart meter, which is capable of reading your energy consumption levels at, you know, hourly and daily intervals. And it's this incredible leapfrog forward in terms of um, being able to really mine your energy consumption data. I can go on PG&E's website and see my energy consumption data on a daily basis, and I, that's actually really helpful to me as a consumer. Um, what has taken the utility industry by surprise is that there's been this consumer backlash by a small but very vocal group of people who fear that the meters um, have electromagnetic frequency radiation that is making them sick. And so people who don't use microwaves, don't use cell phones, or are opposed to cell phone towers are very worried about the kind of growth of wireless technology in general. Um, smart meters has kind of become a flashpoint in that fight as well. And so um, there's kind of been pockets of smart meter resistance in utilities across the country, but it's really been the most vociferous here in Northern California. Um, about 90,000 people have asked PG&E to, to not install a smart meter. And what happened recently was that our state regulators with the California Public Utilities Commission uh, crafted this fairly generous compromise in which, for the first time, they said, okay, if you, if you don't want a smart meter, you don't have to have one. You may keep your analog meter, but you're going to have to pay for the cost of the meter reader servicing your home. Anyone else on smart meters and the impact? I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch because, as Dana said earlier, there's this whole universe of entrepreneurs around the Bay Area that really like this idea and are chomping at the bit to design apps for you. You know, they want you to they want you to be able to do all of your energy management stuff from your cell phone, from your laptop, whatever tablet, whatever device you prefer. And they want all this infrastructure to get in place so that they can roll out these services, and, and hopefully these services will help us cut our energy use. But at the same time, there's there's just been this simmering distrust of, of PG&E's rollout, um, first because people weren't sure they were accurate, and then later because of the, the health concerns. Um, so I, I, I do think that these things are, you know, one form or another of them is inevitable, um, I don't know that. I don't know that the way this is panned out for PG, PG&E will, will replicate itself around the rest of the country. So far, we do seem to be sort of the exception. Uh, well, I can tell you that there's a lot of skepticism in other parts of the country about smart meters and whether they're worth the high cost. And so, a lot of state regulators have uh, rejected proposals by utilities to install smart meters because they don't think that uh, the benefit is there. They, they really don't see the cost benefit. And a recent example is in Illinois, 
where a utility owned by Exelon Corp, it's called Commonwealth Edison, and another utility called Ameren, had been pushing to, uh, you know, for permission to uh, roll out these smart meter programs. And um, in Commonwealth Edison's case, I believe it was, uh, they ultimately prevailed. They got $2.6 billion to do this program. But in the end, it was not an argument about, you know, that these things are going to save consumers money, which is what we were told here in California about, what, five or six years ago? Or six. was it more than that? Six. Which uh, has had mixed results or actually has not really turned out to be the case. The main argument in favor of smart meters in Illinois is that when, you, when there's a storm and the power gets knocked out, the utility knows right away whose power is out and they can respond to the to the outage, and they can restore your power quicker. And on that basis, they got uh, legislative approval to move forward with the project. And uh, I listened to one of the hearings um, in Springfield, and an executive at the utility admitted that, you know, it's really unclear whether these smart meters save anybody any money, but they have a lot of value for the utility, for the grid, uh, you know, just talking about clean energy, um, having a smart grid is better for uh, grid operators when you're dealing with resources like solar power and wind power that can kind of come on and off at different times. So they're not running all the time like a fossil fuel power plant. They produce electricity at different times of the day. And if you have a meter that has these kind of electric sensors and they know what's happening at different times, how much demand you have, how much generation you have in different parts of the grid, um, it's just a much more elegant system, I guess. Works better. And utilities are really interested in moving to time-of-use pricing because if you think about right now the way that you drive your vehicle, you know, when you cross the Bay Bridge during rush hour, the toll that you pay is higher than when you cross the Bay Bridge, you know, not during rush hour. And utilities are very interested in, in charging you electricity the same way. You should, they want to charge you a higher rate during peak, times of peak demand and a lower rate at night. And so they need the smart meter to kind of do that because right now they need to be able to, to do interval pricing. And so once the meters are installed, you'll start to see a lot of things coming before state regulators about moving to time of use and, um, incentivizing people to charge their electric vehicles overnight versus during the day and having a lot of different rate structures that the smart grid would enable. And that would also help us cut our carbon emissions because we wouldn't be relying on peaking plants during you know hot summer days when everyone is cranking the air conditioning. David Baker? That's, that, exactly that has been the, the state policy for a couple of years now, and it's, it's one of the driving forces behind rolling out smart meters here in California. But after PG&E ran into such resistance, uh, the, the utilities regulators started to pull back a little bit. This is, they still very much want it, but they, they now realize they're going to have to have a, a slower rollout because people are going to be very suspicious. And I, while I understand the principle of, of shifting the load around and trying to get people to use power when, it, when you've got a lot available, basically a lot spare, I, I understand the, the principle of that, but I'm not really sure that residential customers can change their their electricity usage enough for that to work. I mean, I, you know, I live in a I live in a multi-unit apartment building, four-story apartment building here in, in town and we have one washer, one dryer. If I get access to that washer at three o'clock in the afternoon when power prices are highest, I have to use it at three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, weekend, I that's guess. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't, that, that's when it's available, that's when I'm going to use it. It's not going to matter what the price is. And people can shift some of their, their energy usage, but not all of it. That's right. So people can't really, it, it's really difficult to shift your energy use. Uh, you know, it, the, the best way you can do that is with heating and cooling, I think. Mm-hmm. But really, when it comes to other things, you know, most people have to get up get their kids to school. The school starts at a certain time. It ends at a certain time. Most people work, you know, during the day. Uh, so, and, you know, and have activities in the evening at certain times. So I think it, it's kind of this this idea that people could somehow, you know, use all their electricity at night when electricity is cheapest, I think, is... Uh, you might have a little bit of that, but you're not going to see this huge migration to nighttime power. You think about it. I mean, peak electricity use in, in our state is usually mid to late afternoon. 
if you live in Fresno or Bakersfield and you're coming home from picking up your kids and it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to crank the air conditioning because you're back at the house. It's Bakersfield. It's hot as all blazes in the summertime. What else are you going to do? You know, you're not going to wait till the peak passes and it's 6 o'clock and your kids are drenched in sweat. You're just not going to do something like that. So people, I think, are more locked into their energy usage patterns than state regulators would like. There's a lot of equity issues, too, around low-income consumers and the disabled and medically fragile um, citizens of our state who might be reliant on medical equipment. I mean, they can't switch their energy use. For you know, for the elderly in the summer, air conditioning is a life-or-death situation. So um, there's a lot of interest in you know, what drives consumer behavior and how can we get consumers to change their behavior. But fundamentally, sort of under all that is just this huge need for energy literacy. And um, just the real, I mean, we don't really study energy in school. <laughs> um, it's become so political, so politicized that now, you know, some schools in this, in this country don't talk about climate change. And so um, I think a sort of fundamental problem that we have as, you know, as citizens is that we're just not a very energy literate society in terms of knowing where our electricity is coming from. Well, we from. need the smart meter to have that information. Right now, the, the, the infrastructure is not there. Cassandra. Well, I had one more thing to say, and the smart meter is really at the end use. You know, that's at the retail level. That's the people who are using it. There's a lot of innovation going on for upstream. So power plants and that grid, we have a dumb grid. So the way that utilities and, and grid operators have been doing things for 100 years is they just operate these power plants continuously, and they just continuously put electricity onto the grid, whether it's needed or not. Because that... Day and night. That's what's called baseload power, because you don't want to get in a situation where you don't have enough. And also, right. it gets complicated. There's a certain voltage level that's needed to continue to allow those electrons to continue moving along the transmission lines and distribution lines. So kind of the idea of the smart grid includes a change upstream where uh, utilities are not going to be just running these plants all the time, you know, basically producing way more energy than we actually need, where it's going to be a little bit more nuanced. So you can, uh, they, they should be able to tell downstream from us how much we're going to need and upstream how much exactly you need to meet that demand and have other ways like storage, energy storage. That's kind of a holy grail for the energy uh, industry. If you could store electricity and then use it during these peak times, you know, it's really hot in Bakersfield and everybody's turning on their air conditioners, then it would be less costly than running, you know, some kind of old gas-fired power plant continuously just in case you need it. Cassandra Sweet is a reporter with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Our other guests today at Climate One are Dana Hull from the San Jose Mercury News and David Baker with the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to put a microphone out here and invite, you, invite your participation, questions, comments, etc. I uh, encourage you to uh, do this. Uh, if you're on this side of the room, we invite you to please go around that door rather than crossing this camera here. And my colleague, Jane Ann, is right there, and that's where the line will start. We really welcome your uh participation. And while we're getting that going, I will ask one more question, uh, which is the previous governor, Schwarzenegger, was kind of the jolly green giant, talked a lot about clean energy, uh, signed a lot of big legislation. How does Governor Brown compare in terms of his uh, what he's doing on, on clean energy? I tend to see him as sort of staying the course and implementing a lot of the things that Schwarzenegger introduced with great fanfare. Um, he isn't as loud about it, but he does go out and talk at a lot of these companies in Silicon Valley. He, you know, if you follow follow him day to day, he does constantly talk about the the state's growing green economy. Um, he seems to be proud of it. I don't expect him to launch big new initiatives, but I also don't think he's going to back off from anything that Schwarzenegger put in place. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Schwarzenegger's greatest legacy is that he signed AB 32, which has kind of put California on this path of reducing carbon emissions. But Governor Brown has really implemented a lot of the enabling legislation. He signed the 33% renewable portfolio standard, and he has his own kind of 20-gigawatt plan where he wants more renewable energy generation in California by 2020, and he really believes in climate change. I mean, he's not afraid to talk about it. He's one of the few governors in the state, in the nation who 
you know, knows how politically charged the whole issue of climate change is and is not going to back away from it. And I think that um, one of his greatest, you know, sort of attributes as a politician is that he believes in science and supports it. <laughs> Dana Hull is a reporter of the San Jose Mercury News. Let's have our audience question. Yes, sir. Gary, Malaysian. I heard a lot of intelligent things said here. And uh, I think our biggest problem in America is ignorance. And the second biggest problem is a lack of leadership. Uh, in the ignorance umbrella, the media plays a very critical part. And then there's an old sales rule that you have to repeat the pitch seven times before you make the sale because they just don't get it. Uh, you folks have a responsibility, I think, to continually badger the public with the information that you gave here today. And there's a group in our country, I call them the super white hard right. <laughs> they refuse information. Uh, it's like a concrete head. And uh, the sure. only way you're going to make a dent in that is to pull that that element forward to move the whole bell curve. So how are you folks going to get more in? And in your, in your umbrella, in your newspaper, where do you fit? Are you a major portion? And if not, do you need to get more... Uh, more, more time uh, in your paper. Yeah, more, more, more <laughs> a bigger department for climate change. Do you have a tough time with your editors getting space for energy stories? No, I mean I'm I, I so I, I'm a I'm a reporter at the San Jose Mercury News. I've been there for 13 years, and for the past two years, clean technology has been my beat. So that's what I cover full time, um, and. I don't have to, you know, so, I mean, that, that in, in a time when newspapers have really shrunk and we have downsized, clean technology remains a full-time beat. So I don't feel like I have to fight with my editors about that. What I will say is that anytime I write a story about climate change, my voicemail gets filled with people who don't believe that climate change is real. They are very organized. They write letters to the editor. They call. They accuse me of being a sort of, you know, brainwashed liberal. Um, I mean, so, so the sort of the opposition on the right... Is is very vocal and very organized, and what would be what would be greatly appreciated is if is if people on the other side would be as equally as equally loud. Um, and you know, our our paper we don't give you know equal weight to climate deniers. I mean, our position is that the scientific evidence is overwhelming that climate change is real, and so we don't you know. I mean, some newspapers still you know they feel like it's still this debate that's up in the air in, in our opinion that that there is no debate climate change is real so we don't we don't sort of bother with that but i I'm, i often have to defend my stories to callers cassandra sweet is that also true at dow jones uh i think it's uh you know it it's it's really a difficult question it's a really good question i think a lot of News, news decisions are based on what's happening in Washington and um, kind of the direction uh, that policy is going and what investors are doing and, and expecting, what the banks expect. And I think certainly in 2008, there was a big push toward clean energy. There was a lot of high hopes at the um, uh, United Nations-sponsored international climate negotiations that, you know, nations would reach an agreement on cutting greenhouse gas emissions and that China and the United States would somehow form detente and that there'd be this movement forward, uh, you know, government policy to, you know, require more renewable energy and um, uh, clean sources of energy and other materials. And when that did not happen... You saw kind of a political fall off, and then I think the media kind of just adjusted to that. And so, uh, you know, climate change a dirty word at Dow Jones? No, 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 certainly not. Uh, I can't speak for the editorial page. That's yeah, right. That's a a Chinese wall between (laughs) the editorial page writers and the news department. Next audience question, please. My name is Josh Seidenfeld. I'm a big fan of all of y'all's writing, and uh, I got to say, it's really refreshing to hear. about that editorial policy at the Merck, so that's that's really neat. Um, my question is uh, about energy efficiency. That's something that, this is a really fantastic conversation, but that was something that I didn't hear much about. 
And I'd like, my, I have two questions. First, what do you think is the most promising development in energy efficiency? So is it finance? Is it technology? Is it analytics and computers? And the second question is how can we get people to talk more about energy fi- efficiency broadly? Because it's sort of inherently boring. So how can we make it less so? We'll go through efficiency quick. We've got a number of people in line. So efficiency, it often gets overlooked. Sorry if I did that here. Sadly, uh, I, I think you answered a lot of it at the very end there. It's, it's, it is a profoundly unsexy topic. And my editors at the, the Chronicle are very receptive to all kinds of energy stories. They're, they're very into the beat. Like, you know, same situation as, as Dana. We've had horrible staff cutbacks in the last few years. They've still kept this beat because they think it's important. That said, when I say efficiency, there are certain editors in the buildings whose eyeballs will roll back into their heads. And you, you just see that they, as soon as you, they hear that word, they tune out. It's, it's tough to get through um, that because if we can't convince our editors that a story is interesting, there's always five or six other stories we could be pursuing that they want us to, to focus on. There's, it's not like we have downtime. Um, and yet we, I think, I know... Actually, all three of us have been able to do this. There are enough companies here in the Bay Area that focus on energy efficiency for for buildings especially. Um, It's become enough of an industry that we can get the stories in that way by playing them basically as business stories. Uh, But it is a tough sell. It really is. I mean, I, I wrote a, I, I got a home energy audit of my house. I live in Oakland, and I wrote a f- sort of personal story about that. But it's, you know, it's like duct, it's duct work and air leaks, and it's not as sexy as solar panels <laughs> or electric vehicles. Um, and, but, I, but energy efficiency is, not, I mean, if you care about the climate change, energy efficiency and reducing the amount of electricity that you use in your home is absolutely the, the number one thing that you can do um, to kind of make a personal impact. And I would encourage people to just think about your own carbon footprint in that way. Also good for jobs that you can't be exported. Uh, uh, Dana Hulls, a reporter of the San Jose Mercury News. Let's have our next audience question. Uh, my name is Clifford Levine, um, and I have a question uh, about uh, the difference between energy efficiency and smart energy and smart grid. Uh, I think, as Cassandra pointed out, the difference between a smart meter and smart grid is very different. Uh, according to IBM, Lawrence Livermore Labs, and Jeremy Rifkin, who spoke here recently, uh, 50% of the electricity that's produced in the United States is leaked out. It's produced according to peak load. Uh, it's routed around the system like water in a pipes until it gets where it needs to go. And by the time it gets where it needs to go, it's, there's twice as much as was necessary. Uh, but there's virtually nothing reported about that in the paper, and yet there are companies, there's a company out in Palo Alto that's having devices tested in the United States now to reduce that. Uh, those devices are also being used to prevent the next San Bruno gas explosion in Spain. Uh, and yet I, I don't see anything reported about that. I mean, I see people standing in the streets in Marin with signs that their smart meters are bad, and smart meters don't provide real-time information. I mean, I was at uh, EPRI recently, and uh, a group of the scientists there were showing me uh, their PG&E reports online. They had all electricity turned off in the house and electricity turned off to the house, and yet PG&E was reporting demand, but it was projected demand. It wasn't real-time demand because there's no two-way communication. Thank you. All right, so the uncovered story. Well, I think when when we report on efficiency, since we're general interest newspapers, we, well, you work for a business wire, so it's a little bit different, but for the Merck and the Chronicle, we're general interest newspapers, and we assume that our audience, the people who are going to be reading these stories, uh, aren't really versed in the, the business, aren't part of the business necessarily. And so those kinds of business-to-business stories where you've got the companies that focus on making just making the grid itself more efficient, those I have a harder time getting those into the paper than uh, an energy efficiency story that directly impacts consumers. Those ones, that's more what my my editors want. Um, Cassandra Sweet. I think, you know, energy efficiency could be anything. It could be, you know, more fuel-efficient cars, like what we've been talking about, or or zero-emission cars, uh, which is very efficient. Um, It can be, you know, using less electricity in your home, uh, or kind of there's this... Disagreement now about uh, California, the California investor-owned utilities and whether they've actually uh, reached the the energy conservation targets that they mm-hmm. promised and that they got paid for. 
you know, and how do you measure it? So I, th- I think there are a lot of really interesting stories. I agree with you that there's not enough news coverage. And as David pointed out, there's a lot of news and a lot fewer reporters than there were, you know, five years ago. Um, but what, so. one thing he mentioned was that a lot of the electricity that's generated somehow gets leaked or wasted. Is that true? Is that something you've yes. written about? Okay. It's always been that way. That's the it's, dumb grid. We, we didn't care about it until recently, but, yeah, it's the way it's worked for decades. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, um, Lori Sinzi from Environmental Defense Fund. It's great to see a lot of my favorite reporters up there. <laughs> Thanks for doing this, Greg. Um, so going back to, you know, that last question and kind of adding on to it, we support the smart grid for its ability to, you know, allow us to use more renewable energy, power electric vehicles, et cetera. Um, it can reduce greenhouse gas emissions quite a bit, which greatly impact public health. On the point regarding um, the backlash against the smart meters and the radio frequencies, um, what can we do to sort of tell the environmental story about the public health impacts of the way that um, the grid is currently affecting us from like a public health and um, environmental standpoint? Well, I think... I guess one thing that I would say is, is really interesting. I've been to a lot of the Public Utility Commission meetings where the smart grid opponents have gotten up and spoken, and it's very easy to portray the, the, those people as, you know, kind of like fringe, hysterical people. But when you actually see them in person, I mean, a lot of them, they've carpooled from, like, San Luis Obispo, and they're talking in tears about how ever since they've had their smart meter, you know, they have insomnia, they have nausea, and, and they make this very compelling, very emotional case. And I don't... I mean, I'm not going to – I don't want to dismiss their concerns, but to them, their health concerns are very real. And at the same time, there aren't people lined up to speak about the benefits of the smart grid. These hearings are packed with opponents who are using social media, who, you know, have these huge signs that say, my house is not a microwave, PG&E, stop poisoning me. And so they have been incredibly incredibly um, proactive and incredibly effective at making their case. And um, at the PUC meeting – Commissioner Simon said, you know, where are the radio silent? Where are the people in support of the smart grid? They're not here. And so I think the smart grid industry and the utility industry and the environmental community um, has maybe been slow to realize that the smart meter opponents are as organized as they are, and they're not going away. They're not planning to go away. If anything, they're gaining more I, th- I think they're gaining more steam. And but but now like they have to, a solution, right? I would they have, like to answer Laurie's question. <laughs> sure. yeah. So I think, Laurie, your question was, how can we explain, kind of like a draw a direct line from the smart meters to the environmental benefits? And this this is this is the best benefit to the environment. So um, you have the grid operator here in California. It's called the California Independent System Operator, and they're con- they're looking at the grid 24 hours a day, seven days a week to see how much electricity is flowing on the lines and how much demand there is. So with the old system where we had analog meters, uh, even the utility, you know, they don't even they don't even send meter readers out to read your meter every month. I mean, they they guess what it is. They estimate and they can do this over years so they don't actually know how much electricity you are actually using and maybe you had your the prior tenant in your apartment you know, had 10 TVs and, you know, a lot of electronics that was using that, you know, maybe worked from home and used a lot of electricity. But you, That's actually quite accurate. you're very, you know, uh, you know, David here is very, you know, conscientious and energy efficient. You're out all day getting the story. And so you're using very little electricity. Well, you know, that, that message could take a long time to reach the utility. But with a smart meter, they can know right now exactly how much electricity you're using, how much you used yesterday, how much you used a year ago during last year's heat wave. And so this grid operator is making these decisions in real time. How much generation are we going to need to meet demand in the next hour and tomorrow? It's called the day ahead and the day ahead uh, the day ahead and the hour ahead uh, markets and these decisions that they make. And so if they don't know, if they, they have to make a really wide guess, they might ask uh, an owner of a very old, very inefficient <laughs> gas-fired power plant that might be 50 years old and produces a lot of emissions to, you know, turn on that plant because we might need your, we might need your generation tomorrow because it's going to be a really hot day and we don't know how much electricity we're going to need. But if everybody has smart meters and they can tell exactly how much everyone's using now, how much they used yesterday, 
how much they they can make a, a very educated guess about how much electricity you know uh, more precisely that they're going to need in the next hour in the next couple of hours the next day and that information might indicate that they don't need that old power plant to start up no we don't, we're not going to need that peaker plant tomorrow you can just let it sh- stay shut down some of these old plants use uh, water from waterways to cool their ste- their uh, turbines, uh, and this is another problem. You know how to how to kind of phase that out. That's bad for marine wildlife. So uh, it's the avoided greenhouse gas emissions of requiring power plants to start up on a hot day, versus having a better idea about exactly how much electricity you're going to need and not needing those extra power plants. David, anything to add? I was just to go back to what Dana was uh, talking about with uh, the radio frequency uh, people. You know, I, the smart grid folks and the environmental folks who believe in smart grid, I think, wanted nothing to do with that entire debate. But it's going to happen anyway. I mean, it's that's already started, and I'm not sure how you folks in the environmental community want to deal with that. Um, but until there is like absolutely until that that whole question has been nailed shut to everybody's satisfaction, which is going to be a little while, you're still going to have this problem. I don't know how big it's going to be in other parts of the country, but, yeah, it's it's not going to go away around here, I don't think, anytime soon. David Baker is a reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Let's have our next audience question, please. All right. Uh, renewable energy developers have come to realize that one of the biggest challenges to actually getting the energy delivered is the transmission grid and proximity to a grid and how easy it is to get the energy connected. And in the past week, we've seen a couple of stories about, for instance, the state park system that um, a bunch of facilities had renewable energy projects completed in in their parks and had a great deal of difficulty getting the interconnection to their local utility. And I think there was another story about uh, some of PG&E's investment in a transmission line that's going to be going from somewhere uh, down to the southern part of the state. So my question is, what do you see as happening in the transmission network in California? What are your projections? What do you think the greatest challenges are right now for improved transmission in California? Thank you for that question. Yeah, Lots of fights over this. It's actually, if you had asked that five years ago, I'd probably give a a little bit different answer in that. Um, You know, about five years back when the state was really looking at getting to 20% renewable by 2010, um, before we even got to the 33%, everybody immediately focused on that issue because we had the electricity crisis here a decade back, which one of the things it showed us was weaknesses in the transmission grid. And so five years ago, the state was very worried about that and was putting putting out these projections that we're going to need all of these new high, high-powered lines all over the place. It's going to cost billions of dollars. Each year, that keeps getting ratcheted back, keeps getting scaled back. And a couple of things are happening at once to do that. Um, part of it is... Part of it is planning, actually. The, in terms of the big power plants that are going out in the, the desert, the big solar plants, the state has been very good working with industry in terms of trying to cluster those in areas that already have a transmission line that can be beefed up or around something that they're pretty sure will be built. So that's helped, and also, frankly, the ability of, of utilities to build little solar facilities here, like, you know, 10 megawatts here, 20 megawatts there, that kind of thing. If they can do that, they won't need as many transmission lines either. So it's it's still probably going to be a lot of lines and a lot of money over time, but it's not quite the gigantic bottleneck that it looked like a few years ago. I think there's still a problem nationwide with development of new transmission capacity, and so that's really a national problem. Uh, federal regulators have, you know, made an attempt to to address that issue to fix it a little bit. But it's still, if you talk to transmission developers, they're still concerned about it. It also affects um, power prices, wholesale power prices. So when you, the more transmission you have, and the more opportunity you have for um, electricity generators in different regions to compete, you know. Uh, 
for um, to sell to utilities. And if you only have one transmission line, well, it's kind of a monopoly for whoever has the rights to ship their electricity over those lines. There's a lot of wind power in the Midwest, uh, you know, in kind of those central states, and it's very cheap. And uh, it's it's even very competitive against fossil fuel power, but um, a lot of that potential is trapped because there aren't enough transmission lines to bring it to you know big markets uh, like Chicago and the Northeast where they could use it. So um, so I think this is something that's it's not very sexy <laughs> for the news business. Unfortunately, you know we try to write about it when we can, but. Uh, you know, certainly there are a lot of people who are pushing for this, um, so hopefully there will be some development this year. And, and Governor Brown's out there pushing distributed solar generation, whether it's rooftop or on state lands by the side of highways or that sort of thing, which presumably is closer to where the demand is. Is that going to reduce the need for new transmission? Yeah. <clears throat> it'll it'll re- reduce the need for, for new transmission lines, but you still have to upgrade upgrade the grid to kind of add to I guess it's upgrading the transformer, the local transformer. I mean, there's so it's not like you can just put up rooftop solar everywhere without without working on the. You still need new transmission. So, for example, uh, what was that last November when San Diego like completely lost Mm -hmm. almost all their electricity, and that was a transmission issue. They were, you know, they're very transmission constrained there. They don't have enough uh, transmission, and it was a problem that started in Arizona, and it just cascaded. to, to San Diego, and, you know, that was just a big example of how much more transmission, you know, certain areas of the country need. We have to wrap it up. I just want to touch on one thing that we skated over earlier, and that is the, the trade dispute on solar, winners and losers. There's some U.S. manufacturers accusing China of dumping. How is this going to affect the solar industry? Who's going to win and lose? Dan Hall? <laughs> well, um, so in March, we should get a decision from uh, the federal kind of trade regulators about whether you know, if there was dumping, and if there, if there, if China is dumping, then how much are the tariffs going to be? And um, it's really kind of created this huge dispute within the American solar industry because you have installers like Sungevity, Solar City, Sunrun, mom and pop kind of installers who have been able to take advantage of the cheaper panel prices and really create a great business out of putting rooftop solar on. Um, it's the manufacturers like Solyndra that have been caught in the sort of downside of this equation, and so. The question is, if we're gonna, if we, if we, if we slap a tariff on imported Chinese panels, in my opinion, the American consumer loses because the price of solar is going to go up. And just we're at this point where solar is really beginning to take off, and there's a lot of fear that that's going to stall if the prices go up. Um, But at the same time, the the solar manufacturers are really getting their lunch eaten, and you know, and more and more solar manufacturers are probably going to file for bankruptcy this year because they just can't compete with China on cost. So the, the kind of debate with China has pitted manufacturers against installers. Anything else to add to that? Okay. Cassandra I think, uh, yeah, I've covered this issue as well. Um, I think because this process is going to take quite a while, I think someone was telling me it might be August before we get like a some kind of final decision. And so all these companies are figuring out kind of what what they have to do to adjust to this possibility of tariffs on um, Chinese imports of uh, uh, solar panels and solar cells. Uh, Certainly, I think there's kind of wide agreement that it will probably lead to higher prices in the near term. It will also lead to um, opportunity, you know, it will be an advantage to uh, U.S. and uh, manufacturers and other manufacturers outside of China, so Taiwan, South Korea, European suppliers uh, in the short term. But I think, I think uh, you know, the Chinese solar panel makers, uh, they're the largest in the world. Uh, they have partnerships around the world, and I think it's probably likely that they'll figure out, you know, how to, you know, how to handle uh, any kind of new tariffs and still, you know, grow. They'll find a way around it. Uh, Cassandra Sweet is a reporter with Dow Jones and the Wall Street Journal. Other guests today at Climate One have been David Baker from the San Francisco Chronicle, Dana Hull from the San Jose Mercury News. A free podcast of this and other Climate One conversations is available in the uh, iTunes store. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to, today to Climate One. Thank you.